Today, our guest Clincy is a PhD graduate in material science at UCLA and an incoming consultant at Bain. We met recently on his brief visit to Asia, and I was immediately impressed by his expertise across multiple STEM disciplines. Today, we're lucky to have him share his recent deep obsession with radio pharmaceuticals, an emerging life-saving science that is revolutionizing cancer diagnostic and treatment. To start, perhaps I'll read out a tweet that you shared with me、uh, in our previous conversation. It describes radio pharmaceutical as an once a dormant space that has rapidly. Grown over the past few years, and since 2018, there has been three novel FDA-approved therapeutics, over one billion in investor funding, and over 10 billion in M&A and licensing deals. With a current industry pipeline showing 60-plus clinical stage and 100-plus preclinical assets, with you sitting, having this front-row seat, witnessing this gold rush. And the rapid growth in this industry.、Uh, perhaps my first question is, what prompted your obsession with this、uh, emerging science? What got you interested in it? Yeah. So、uh, thank you for having me. And I really just kind of got into it because <clears throat>、um, I was really involved with you know you know tech transfer work at you know UC,、uh, UCLA, which is the university where I did my PhD, and. One professor decided to commercialize this technology, and I decided to just help them do the due diligence on this technology,、um, just by going through everything in the industry, from the competition to how the market functioned, and all the technicals associated with how radio pharmaceuticals is distributed and、uh, and used by the end user.、Uh, I've had a couple members of my、uh, family with cancers, and I've had a couple friends、uh, who have also、um, luckily gone into remission as well. And that kind of got me thinking that there are a bunch of people with stage three and four cancers who are generally who gen, who might be who are terminal or might be terminal that really don't have another option. But when I came across radio pharmaceuticals during my due、uh, due diligence,、uh, this was one option.、Uh, as you mentioned, there was、uh, there are three approved drugs for <clears throat> for cancers, and two of them involve、uh, two of them involve solving、uh, two very tough types of cancers. Uh, where it's generally approved for people who are in stage three and four、um, uh, prostate cancer or、um, uh, you know a different form of pancreatic cancer, and this provides another line of defense for you know those patients to be able to have a chance to live、uh, a lot longer and not have to say goodbye to their loved ones. Right, it's definitely a very impactful field that if we can、um, popularize it.、Um, Across different hospitals, and、uh, you know, apply them to different patients, could see、uh, very drastic cha-、uh, improvements to the way we deal with cancer.、Yeah. Um, but before we go deep down、uh, different rabbit holes, we can take a step, step back and understand cancer and radio pharma、mm-hmm. in general.、Yeah. So, why don't you give us an overview of? What is cancer? The different stages, and、uh, your definition of radio pharma.、Yeah. How does it fit into the picture? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I guess、uh, I'm I'm no oncologist, so I think I'll just give kind of the you know how I see you know cancer 
in the context of how radio pharma can really kind of help. So generally, cancer, you know, you it, it's broken down into you know multiple types and subtypes, and then you have stage one to four where it ver- varies from localized all the way to distant, meaning that it's spread everywhere in the body. So as I mentioned, that you know, radio pharmaceuticals are <coughs> are really good. <coughs> excuse me, are really good for stage three and four cancers because. Um, as I'll mention in a second, that they're, you know, that they have the ability to self-target to different bodily processes in the, in uh, in your body to be able to attach to different cancer receptors and automatically hit those tumors in a very selective way. So, kind of how we, so you know, in stage three and four cancers, the reason why radio pharmaceuticals are so important is that having this mechanism of, of allows uh, a patient to avoid damage to healthy tissues. Conventionally, before this, you would rely on any kind of radiation therapy or chemotherapy. Those or are generally surgeries. and surgeries. Yeah. yeah, if if you're in stage one and your surgery is just if your cancer is very local, you can have, simply have a surgery, take out the tumor, right, and you can go home and you would you would live just as many years as you would had you not had that tumor. If the you know and you also have other options like radiation therapies. You have chemotherapy where it can simply just attack those tumors and do some damage to healthy tissue, but generally the risk is worth the reward to get rid of that tumor. When you're at stage three or four, you have to use quite a bit more of chemotherapy and it causes a lot more damage to you know healthy tissues around the surrounding area on top of destroying tumor tissues. So your risk reward is a lot more, imba- a lot less balanced than, it's a lot more imbalanced uh, for stage three and four cancers, as well as radiation therapies. For radiation therapies, you you know basically target individual tumors, but if it's everywhere at that point, you basically are playing whack-a-mole with, you know, tumor um, with with distant tumors in your body. So this is where radio pharmaceuticals come in. And my definition of radio pharmaceuticals is uh, somewhat broad. It's simply taking an organic compound that targets a specific biological process or attaches to a certain receptor in your body, and you're um, doing a chemical reaction in order to attach a radio isotope, uh, basically a, uh, a particle, uh, an element that has um, property, uh, an element that has unstable properties that causes it to release some sort of radiation. Either it would release gamma radiation or positron, um, or positron, uh, uh, positron radiation, which gives you a, the ability to, uh, gives uh, the ability of the organic compound to uh, release radiation f- uh, to be collected for imaging, uh, such as in a uh, positron emission tomography scan, and that gives you information about your bodily processes. For example, you can see where you know your glucose uptake is, wherever your body is consuming glucose. Essentially, you can view things like cell division, where your body is, uh, <coughs> you know, uh, uh, your body is um, dividing cells more quickly than usual, which is typically a hallmark of a tumor. Or you can take that same organic compound and uh, label it or react it with a, another radioisotope that has, uh, you know, a different type of uh, uh, radioactive emission. In certain cases, it's electron radiation, uh, which can be used to, um, you know, irradiate tumors in a very selective way, as I mentioned. Or you can also uh, react it with something that releases alpha radiation, which also de- destroys tumor tumors, um, sometimes more effectively, but in a very, in, in a much more small radius, meaning that it destroys even less healthy cells. Right. So I think just to <clears throat> summarize and um, uh, to understand it better, the yeah. main p- 
pain point or the, the bottleneck for solving um, cancer, the conventional treatments is they're not targeted because of the uh, properties of cancer such that it spreads across the body, right? It, this is the reason why uh, it is so hard to cure. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, Radio Pharma comes through with a potential solution by um, exactly offering, as you said, uh, a guided missile yeah. perhaps to um, target those localized uh, cancer cells while preserving the healthy cells um, in the other parts of the body. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's it's like almost giving a sniper with a map, right? Instead right. of using like, um, you know, if you have a stage three and four tumor, it's almost like akin to, if you do radiation therapy, it's almost like kind of basically carpet bombing your body <laughs> with, with radiation. Um, it's 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 going to do other damage to your other tissues, um, and chances are you might not even get rid of your, you know, get rid of the the tumor target that you intended to get rid of in right. the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, as one of the cutting edge cancer treatments, um, how has this science evolved um, over the course of the last ten twenty years? And I guess what led to this. Um, what catalyzed this gold rush recently that we are seeing the, uh, this growth of momentum and uh, activity in the field. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So radio pharmaceuticals have been around for, you know, you know, I, I haven't done too much on, you know, on focus on the history, but I, you know, I'm aware that they're, they've been around for <clears throat> since the, you know, since at least 1950, you know, uh, there have been things like, you know, um, there have been things like, like uh, you know, just like radioactive iodine, for example, has been used for like thyroid cancer treatments. If you have stage one thyroid cancer, I had a friend with mm-hmm. stage one thyroid cancer, and you know, she took a took um, she took a very specific uh, just iodine solution with some radioactive iodine, and the thyroid typically takes up uh, the iodine you know, takes up a lot of iodine compared to the rest of the body. So that in itself is kind of uh, the first form of you know, targeted therapy for um, for cancers. What really catalyzed this industry over the past, you know, 20 years, for example, was a company called Accel- Advanced Accelerator Applications mm. um, in Europe. And they started around 2003, and they took the principle where you can take that, you know, take an organic compound. In this case, they were specifically targeting a class of neuroendocrine tumors. And they realized that there was a, uh, there was a, there was a, there was a receptor that was overexpressed uh, in in that specific type of cancer, and they found a compound that binds to that specific type of uh, receptor. They then took that compound and decided to uh, label it or react it with a, uh, a um, radioisotope called lutetium, which gives off uh, uh, electron radiation, which would destroy any kind of cells that are near it. So. The idea was that they took that compound that goes specifically to the, to the, the those that specific class of neuroendocrine tumors, and they would attach that you know that sniper payload, and then essentially that would go and irradiate all the tumors in a very localized fashion. And they spent about 12 years um, developing that drug asset, all the way to phase three clinical trials, and they had to go through one rejection before they ultimately got it approved. And when it got approved in 2018, uh, got it approved, then in 2018, Novartis bought the drug um, and bought the company and, you know, for the drug asset. And then uh, after that, they also bought a company called Endocyte, which 
developed the same kind of class of drug uh, for prostate cancers as well. For so, you know, that was another 2.1 billion. So in total, they spent about six billion dollars to be able to develop market leadership in this, you know, in these kind of first-in-class drugs. And ever since, there have been a, a whole lot of startups that have uh, either just launched using private money or launched using, uh, you know, using research from a university and then adding some private backing on top of that and spinning out of the spinning out of the university to be able to develop this drug asset to bring more candidates to the FDA targeting different cancers. Right. So it seems like the science and technology has been there for a while. Mm-hmm. What took the FDA so long to approve this uh, kind of treatment, in your view? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm i definitely not an expert in regulatory affairs, but the FDA is generally more conservative uh, with, with really any kind of drug approval. Um, but especially for a drug like this, it's never been proven uh, in in this very specific instance. So Lutathera, which is the drug that I mentioned that advanced accelerator applications had had uh, had got approved um, for neuroendocrine tumors. That was a, that was the very first in class drug. So they had they had rejected it first on the grounds that there wasn't enough safety data and not enough data on efficacy that it showed that patients would live longer uh, to the point where it justified the risk of using the medicine. Um, but then they spent you know more time doing clinical trials, and then they ultimately got that approved. So I think it's really just um, just regulatory conservatism that might be uh, that is just present in most drug approvals that was kind of applied a little bit more, considering this was a first in class drug that right. that really kind of delayed it, you know. Right, especially um, for its application on the life and death situations. Right. I like cancer. Right. Um, and I think um, as we delve deeper into the science of it, I think a, a, a big improvement um, f- from the previous um, class of treatment is the ability to um, to see where the, uh, the cancer cells are and target them, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah. the property with radio pharma. Um, perhaps related to that, uh, is the development of PET scans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, how did we um, get to where we are today with the I- imaging technologies that allows or paves the way for uh, radio pharma? Yeah. Um, uh, it came from our previous conversations uh, that I learned the PET scan is a, um, it was a major contributor to this mm-hmm. revolution, right? right? And how did it start and how does it, how is it different from uh, you know, the CTs, the x-rays, the MRIs that we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so PET was actually, so PET or positron emission tomography was actually developed at UCLA, you know, where I'm from. And one, so one professor realized that you can, <clears throat> even before advanced accelerator applications decided to take this, or, you know, an organic compound and label it with a therapy, um, with a therapy uh, uh, isotope, they, he realized that you can label, you know, a compound like glucose, for example, and then label it with a uh, with an isotope called fluorine eighteen, which emits positrons, uh, which ultimately releases um, a very specific um, wave, <clears throat> which re- which releases a very specific energy of gamma radiation. And if you design your detectors 
uh, for a specific type of scanner very cr um, in, in a circular fashion, you can collect all those rays in, in, an, um, in, a, in a way that would generate an image. Uh, and after he realized that, he realized that you can probably do this for a whole host of different, uh, you know, a different whole host of different uh, organic compounds, not just imaging where glucose goes in your body. As I mentioned, you can do cell division. You can also image, you know, where Alzheimer's plaques are in your brain to see the progression of um, progression of Alzheimer's. You can image for Parkinson's. Um, there's a lot of research going on to that. Uh, compared to CT and MRI, it gets you a more it gets you a different you know set of images. Uh, one that shows you your bodily functions rather than just you know where your skeleton is, where your uh, where your organs are, where you know some soft tissue is. Especially in the case of MRI, there are benefits obviously to CT and MRI, but you'd have to see a physical change if you wanted to use it to screen for cancer, for example. Uh, for CT, it's used a lot in it's it's used more and more in in the U.S. for lung cancer screenings, but it relies on the fact that you have to have some lesions, meaning like you know you have some kind of uh, physical change on your lung to be able to uh, see if that's a tumor or not. Using PET, you can see it with you know like um, if you inject uh, if you inject in if you inject an injection of um, radioactive glucose, you can just see wherever there's a you know tumor by seeing wherever there's abnormal glucose uptake, which means typically there's more um, glucose consumption um, because there's more um, there's more uncontrolled cell division. More controlled cell division means there's more you know glucose being consumed. So that's kind of the advantage of using PET, and that's kind of how that was that was the motivation for developing the technique in the first place. Mm. And then even before we had. Uh, even before we had uh, therapies like from advanced accelerator applications, the better imaging enables doctors to be able to better understand how far the disease has progressed instead of just using a physical scan. And then that also informs them, you know, for things like radiation therapy, which has existed for much longer than, uh, you know, uh, than uh, radiopharmaceutical therapies, is that you can better target that radiation and better treat the disease. So there was better disease management, and that's really what picked up uh, that's 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 why hospitals picked up um, PET more and more for uh, cancer management. So so I guess the imaging technologies came first. Yeah. And then the doctors realized, hey, why don't we, uh, with this capabilities, why don't we have a class of drug that can both um, radiate yeah. to reflect the the what's happening within the body, but also treat the cancer. Right. That, so so I guess more moving to the radio pharma the compound of it the mm -hmm. the drug of it yeah um what are the different components so as i understood there's the um the component that uh, attached to the cancer drugs and also mm -hmm. the part that lights up to show up in the images mm -hmm. it, is that the uh, i guess the the breakdown of the compound the yeah so it's 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 two different compounds so let's use the uh yeah. the one by um uh, advanced accelerator, yeah. for example. Um, so they actually commercialized two two different compounds, uh, and it's based off the same organic compounds. So the the organic compound was called Tate T A T E. It's um it's an acronym for uh, you know for the compound that attaches to um, this thing called the somatostatin receptor, which is overexpressed in uh, neuroendocrine tumors. So this compound would attach to those specific cells wherever those tumors are. That's what is able to kind of give the roadmap for any kind of, 
you know, they've given the roadmap for where the compound, uh, where the radioisotope should go, regardless of whether it's imaging or whether it's therapy. So you take that compound, uh, you attach, you basically attach a, a chelator, which is a, a stabilizing kind of complex um, for the uh, radioisotope afterwards to go on top of that to be able to stabilize it, so that makes so it makes sure that while it's in your body, it doesn't break down while it's on the way to the tumor. So there's two separate. So using the same organic compound, they developed two separate compounds. So that organic compound, one of them, they used the um, they used an imaging uh, isotope, meaning that uh, it would re- it would release positron radiation and by extension gamma. So that uh, isotope is using gallium sixty eight. So that so, so that organic compound labeled with gallium-68, that compound as a whole is used for the imaging. So when you inject that into someone, it illuminates wherever, you know, they have, where, wherever they have the neuroendocrine tumors in their body and how, and how great that extent is. And then you take that second compound, which is also the same organic compound, but instead of having gallium-68 as, as, the, imaging, uh, as the imaging isotope, you're attaching something called lutetium-177, which emits uh, electrons instead. Now, electrons can't cannot be imaged because they don't, they don't. By the time you know, they don't penetrate, you know, outside of the body. While gamma can make it outside your body, that's why the scanner can collect it. So, by using lutetium, by by using the imaging agent first, you're finding out where the tumor is, and then you're using the um, the therapy compound after that to basically treat it and then you're basically just iterating again and again mm. um, because after you use the therapy compound you want to find out to what extent the tumor has been attacked and then you image it again to see where it is whether it's receded or re- whether it's progressed and then you just treat it again and you kind of keep doing this until the t- tumor is gone and mm-hmm. yeah so so what I'm hearing is uh, well, number one there are multiple classes of uh, of uh, therapeutic compounds right. and uh, this roadmap compound that attached to it mm-hmm. depends on the type of cancer that we're we're aiming for, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. like the the radioisotope is yeah. agnostic to the different types of cancers to a certain extent. Yeah. Just just to yeah. uh, clarify, yeah. radioisotope is yeah. the is the the imaging particle that illuminates the the body, yeah, is it correct? Okay. Uh, or yeah, it, it, radioisotopes are either it, it's it's any radioactive particle, okay. and depending on the type of radi- radiation releases, it determines whether it's the imaging radioisotope or the therapy radioisotope. Okay, and so then, it could be yeah. both uh, imaging and therapy. Uh, yeah, okay. individually, but um, yeah. not at the not that not at the same time. Generally, okay. there are a couple exceptions in in the literature, but, uh, you know, we, we wish that one could exist for both imaging and therapy at the same time, because that'd be ideal, right? If you do the therapy at the same time, you can image right. in real time where the therapy is going. Um, there have been explorations in, you know, science for that, uh, but generally what you have is right. You know, it's the organic compound is generally the one that changes depending on what type of cancer you want to target. So, okay. Yeah. And, um, how standard is the production process for these different radioisotopes? Um, perhaps now is a good segue into um, delving deeper into the industry yeah. aspect of this radio pharma. Right. Um, who are the biggest players in every segment? And I guess before that, what's the typical 
production process like? Yeah. In your view, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's interesting because there've only, as you said, there's only been you know, like, there's only been three FDA approved radio pharmaceuticals. So we'll go with the we'll go with two of them. Um, so the two drugs that have been approved by uh, that have been approved by the FDA that have both been acquired by Novartis. So Novartis has has two plants for the production of Lutathera, which is the one for neuroendocrine tumors. And I think the biggest cha- the biggest challenge is that there isn't necessarily there isn't necessarily a standard yet because there's only there's only two drugs that have been approved. So essentially that cup, you know, Novartis can decide how they want to produce it in the safest and most effective way possible. Um, it's still kind of up in the air for the industry, uh, how they want to produce radiopharmaceuticals in general. And it also differs from therapies to, to imaging agents. But let's start with the therapies. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of therapies that still can be made. So as I mentioned, the, the radioactive part, the radioactive um, therapy isotope that uh, I mentioned, lutetium-177, has a half-life associated with it. Which is around six, six, six or so days. So if you make it in a factory in Europe, you can ship it to the United States, and it, you'd still have a decent amount of it to be able to to be able to treat a patient with it. So that is also one of the things that's going to determine how the how the supply chain and how the production is going to look like. Because if your half life is you know is not six days, maybe it's three days, that really can determine where your where your manufacturing facilities are going to be placed. Around the world, in order to serve the cust- your your uh, your customers and ultimately your patients and all all the stakeholders in the industry, so I'm not sure where the industry is going to be headed in terms of manufacturing capability. Um, there's still a lot of, I think a bigger, I think a bigger, more fundamental question is there's still kind of a jockeying between what isotope is going to win out, and lutetium is is a good isotope, but it's been it's been shown that certain Certain cancers, uh, uh, certain cases of neuroendocrine cancers have still progressed even after you've treated it with um, with this specific medicine. And um, as we were talking about just uh, just before uh, recording this, uh, one of the companies that goes is going public, uh, Raise Bio. They basically took that same drug that um, that Novartis has for neuroendocrine tumors, and they attached a different uh, therapy isotope that has a half life of ten days. So they decided to they decided to establish a plant in Indianapolis where there is a FedEx hub, mm-hmm. and for easy distribution of these medicines. But if the half life is ten days, then you basically have more time to be able to distribute this drug around the world, and you have more flexibility given that less you know less of it will decay in in transit. So I bring up that example because that's another that's another area where. That's that's a very scientific way to basically say that like it's it's still up in the air based on you know a lot of uh, the nuances of how some of these medicines are made and what you know what tech what you technically use right so yeah I, I guess to uh, bring it back to the basics because um, yeah. I've I've done some of the homework in yeah. advance but uh, just for the general population um, f- for any radioactive compound. Um, Radioactive decay is part of the properties that's built in, right? So, so right. if you see any um, any compound that emits uh, energy, yeah, um, it will have a half life. Yeah, right, right. So, so what is half life? Yeah, very quickly. 
Right. So half-life is the amount of time that it takes for a radioactive isotope to lose basically half of it. So, you know, the nature of a radioactive particle is that it's unstable. So it's either releasing energy or, you know, particles from its nucleus and it's decaying to a different element. And the half-life, if it's six days, for example, that means that if you started with a certain amount of radioactive material after six days, you'll have half you'll have exactly half or around you have around half of that material left and then after another six days you'll have half of that so so depending on what isotope you use for therapy that that really can determine your supply chain and how many of those facilities you have to have and how centralized that facility can be and how much scale you can have uh, in the business right and i find that is a very interesting uh, element um, or constraint to this to this industry, it's, it's it's completely determined by the um, the manufacturing process. It, it is determined by the properties of the uh, chemical compound you're producing. Right, um, and and you're at the you're basically at the mercy of physics, right? You right. Know? And it's funny because I, I think this is this might be a good point to add is that for conventional pharma, you don't have this limitation where you don't have this limitation where you can, where you have to have a lot more, perhaps a lot more manufacturing sites, depending on how long your half-life is. Even for Moderna and Pfizer, when they made their vaccines, you, a cold chain is very difficult to, to, to navigate around, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's possible. And you can still make, you can still make a lot, a lot of vaccines, you know, at a single facility, uh, just like, Pfizer can make a, you know, like a billion pills at a single facility and you can simply just batch test, you know, you can just test, you know, one batch out of those billion pills and ensure that, you know, a large portion of that batch is going to be safe, right? You can take multiple batches and you can do all the quality control at that centralized facility. Depending on how your half-life is going to work out for, for drug, for your commercialized drug, depending on what isotope you chose to use, uh, you have to do quality control every so often because you have to make a new batch every time a patient requires a new treatment. So that's the unique thing about radiopharmaceuticals. Because of the nature scientifically of how radiopharmaceuticals work, that really determines how complex your ch- supply chain is and how regulatory bur- regulator- regulatorily burdensome your your business is, which... It's understandable. You want to have to. You want to have safe and effective medicines delivered to your patients, but it's something that we can't really get. A, we we can't really get past. Right. Yeah. So, how are the companies navigating this? <clears throat> I, I think you mentioned um, they build plants uh, right. near uh, FedEx uh, distribution centers. Um, perhaps they have multiple plants uh, across different regions. Right. So how are they navigating this right now? Yeah, so so that's that's an interesting question. So I think that this is where it also goes beyond just the logistics. Uh, so if you're talking about Ray's Bio, the company that I just mentioned had an IPO, and comparing it with Novartis, for example, they um, they just simply established a plant, you know, in Indianapolis and Europe, respectively. But beyond that, they also have to rely on a you know, a nuclear supply chain for the lutetium and uh, some of the other radioactive radioactive part, uh, isotopes that they have to use for their therapies. So because those are produced in a nuclear reactor, 
Um, so that's one of the very significant portions of uh, the supply chain that is li the li limiting factor to how many people can get these therapies in the first place. Um, and I think what you what you were probably asking is basically how they were going to be setting up plants to be able to meet this kind of demand. But beyond right. that, they have to make sure that they can get the isotope in the first place. And yep. in order to get that isotope, they are arranging with a lot of you know nuclear power providers to basically recover the byproduct that was normally useless. Um, and now they're repurposing it, re repurposing what would have become nuclear waste uh, to something that is now a part of life-saving therapy. So that's how they're dealing with the supply chain right now. Uh, there are some other companies that are experimenting with different kinds of radioisotopes instead of lutetium-177 or actinium-225. This is probably gibberish coming out of my mouth <laughs> a little bit. But they're also experimenting with a different isotope of, of lead, for example, one that is not... Um, one that's not, one that's not like the one that's conventionally toxic to us. It's a different isotope that releases uh, a type of radiation that is very effective for destroying tumors, and that one can be produced in that one is produced in a um, in a nuclear reactor as well. But that one has a um, that one can be produced with, you know, like a basically like a parent isotope that decays all the way down that lasts a lot longer, and then it can be basically produced on demand in a very compact fashion. I won't get too much into the, the details of how, how that works, but there are a lot of companies that um, w when, when a company deals with a supply chain for the therapy isotopes, they deal a lot with how to source, how to source those isotopes in the first place, not necessarily right. how the plant uh, is built, so, okay. even though the plant is a large cost. Right, so yeah. that's where more, uh, talking more on the supply chain for this industry, um, I guess, what does supply chain mean here? Mm -hmm. uh, what's the uh, upstream, midstream, uh, yeah. downstream um, segments from even the equipment makers to, yeah. I guess, the compound manufacturers and then, I guess, uh, contract manufacturers and then to the to the big pharmas. So, so I think for a lot of us um, outsiders, when we think about drugs, we thought it's just a simple process made mm -hmm. by the company that brands it and sells it but i guess from our previous conversation there's a long supply chain yeah uh, can be very fragmented yeah and a lot of different industry players come together to make this happen right mm -hmm. yeah so um so just give us a, a breakdown of uh, different industry segments and yeah. uh, how did we get from chemical elements on earth to a drug that we put into people's mouth and veins yeah. for curing cancer. Yeah. yeah, so that that's the interesting thing is that <clears throat> the conversation we had was also was uh was for a totally different portion of the supply chain as well. So the one that I just talked about uh so as I mentioned there's you know the the, the imaging compound and the therapy compound. Right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the plants that I talked about were for the therapy compound. Right. The one with the 6-day half-life for example where you can afford to centralize the therapy compound manufacture you know, pretty large batches, and you can ship it out to patients via plane, and it can be injected, you know, because you still have enough of it after, you know, after uh, the amount of time it takes to transport, because it takes six days to lose half of it. Right. <clears throat> A totally separate supply chain for the imaging compounds exists as well, because you have different isotopes for those. Mm. And unfortunately for those, um, 
those are a lot shorter. So the most common isotope that is used is fluorine 18, and the half-life for that is 109 minutes. So after 109 minutes, you lose half of it. So generally about eight hours, your, the shelf life on your material is, it, you know, it is it, the shelf life on your compound is, is gone. You can't, you can't really have enough to image a patient anymore. Mm. So how, so let's kind of go through how, how, how those are made because, um, imaging isotopes, like imaging isotopes, the supply, like the logistics are a little more intensive than, than say therapy isotopes, even though the therapy isotopes would require, you know, a whole, you know, a whole plant to be able to, to, to supply them. So, so starting from the, so, so the, so starting from, for, for the imaging isotopes. So you basically take the isotope. So let's use fluorine 18, for example, you would have uh, something called a cyclotron, which the room that we're in right now is about, uh, I'd say maybe 15 by 15. Uh, so about 225 square feet. Yeah. Or for you know, for anybody else not in the United States, uh, twenty about twenty square meters. Is that the size of a cyclotron? Yeah, that's about the that's about the size of the cyclotron. If you know, from from edge to edge, uh, top to bottom, uh, uh, in in a cute uh, in a cubic way, um, and you probably re- you know you probably need you know like room on top of that to be able to have people go through there, and then right. also. Um, on top of that, you need to have like you know a large vault to be able to contain all of the um, the radiation while it's in operation. But we won't get too much into that. So starting from there, you would you know require this two million dollar piece of equipment to produce that isotope in the first place. And that's the imaging isotope. Yeah, that's the imaging isotope. Okay. Just the just the particle uh, to be that releases the radiation that you have to com- combine with the organic compound. Right. So that's the next step in the in the in the process. You synthesize the compound by taking that organic compound and reacting it with the imaging isotope to create one single compound that has the ability to release radiation. That compound is then purified and then formulated to get into um, to get into the efficacy uh, for the patient mm-hmm. as well as in the do- in the um, in the volume that is necessary to get into the patient's veins and you know be effective essentially. We won't get too much into that. After that, you have to quality control test uh, each one of these batches that you make. Um, and then after that, you dispense each of those doses into individual syringes, and then you send them off into uh, different hospitals. So as you can imagine, one of these labs can cost anywhere from uh, 4 to $6 million, including the cyclotron and all the equipment to do radiation protection, all of the staff, all right. of the quality control equipment that is necessary. And this is all very specialized labor that is required to be able to make these compounds. It's a massive investment. Extremely, yeah. Extremely massive investment. And part of it, part of how the model works is that um, is that there's one very specific compound um, that is called FDG. So it's essentially a glucose that has been, uh, that has been reacted with a uh, fluorine-18 molecule. Uh, so that basically when it's injected into someone, it basically goes into wherever the, it goes uh, to wherever the body uh, takes up glucose. Uh, and typically, as I said, wherever the body takes up more glucose, that's typically where a tumor is. And it covers a lot of different types of tumors around your body. So if it covers a lot of different cancer indications and types, that means there's a lot of, um, you know, that's, there's a lot of demand for it because the, can- the size of the population of 
cancer patients that you can address is larger. Mm-hmm. So there's enough demand to justify this investment. So what radio ph- commercial radio pharmacies, which are essentially the contract manufacturers um, for this for this specific drug, well, this drug is out of patent, so they can manufacture it directly without uh, without uh, having to pay any uh, any owner of this drug patent. So what they've done is essentially they've made large batches of this drug, and you know whatever hospital needs it, they basically tell them you know like the night before they need this dose, <clears throat> or a few days before, depending on the radio pharmacy. They make a batch of maybe anywhere from five hundred to a thousand doses, and they split you know all those doses among a bunch of diff- a bunch of different hospitals to be able to make it economical for them. And they have to do this basically every single day, right? Because since the half-life of fluorine 18 is 109 minutes, you can't simply just make, you know, a billion doses like like right. um, like Bayer or or Pfizer does, yeah. and hope that it will last for for two years. Because by the end of eight hours, you'll you'll lose most of it. So essentially, you have to make a new batch every single day, and then kind of just start the day, you know, start the day over and over again, and just keep going. So it in, it's an incredible amount of investment for each radio pharmacy to to make to make this drug. And as a result, the industry only has a single one, one single drug because there's enough cancer patients to do it. It's generally cheap enough to make and there's enough demand to support the the capital investment of uh, you know of of these companies. And there's been plenty of companies who have waded into this industry and have ended up going bankrupt because you know they either overestimated demand and they have a bunch of equipment that is so specialized that can't be repurposed for any other um, any other types of uh, imaging drugs because this is the only one that has enough demand to justify you know making enough doses to to cover the cost of reimbursement and uh, covering the cost of your equipment by extension right yeah. so so as you mentioned that the imaging compound and therapeutic compound each has its own supply chain. It yeah. also depends on the radioisotope, uh, the kind of chemical you're producing. It requires specialized machinery equipments as well. Yeah, and and here's um, here's kind of the to kind of just zoom out and get a higher like slightly higher level view. Um, so for example, like fluorine eighteen is you know used to image glucose, for example. But let's take the example or. Florin 18, for example, like, you know, there are, you know, around the entire country for Florin 18 radio pharmacies, there, there's a company called Cardinal Health. They're a large provider of, you know, uh, you know, tongue depressors and just a bunch of general medical equipment, but they happen to have a radio pharmacy presence. So around the country, they have 30 of these sites with 30, you know, about 30 cyclotrons that produce this uh, drug um, FDG, the radioactive glucose. Um, and keep in mind the half-life again is 109 minutes. But if you take the drug that Novartis has produced uh, with their therapy drug um, for neuroendocrine mm-hmm. tumors, the imaging portion of that is made with gallium-68, not fluorine-18, and the half-life on that is 68 minutes. So every 68 minutes, instead of 109, you lose mm-hmm. half of it. So essentially what has happened in um, how that how that is uh, reflected in the industry is that um, so Cardinal Health dis- distributes gallium-68 radiopharmaceuticals. And instead of having just 30 sites that do, instead of just having 30 sites, they have 190 sites. 
to be able to distribute gallium-68 radiopharmaceuticals compared to 30, 30 or so sites for F-18. So your half-life really determines your kind of destiny, you know, right. in terms of how how broad your presence has to be in order to produce these certain radiopharmaceuticals for for patient use. Right. I think radiopharma is an industry that's is a prime example for um, for a room uh, having a room for government to step in with subsidies and incentives for companies mm-hmm. to build out the supply chain because as you said the uh, the scale is really important here mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the uh, cancer classes uh, may be overlooked mm-hmm. um, if we just focus on the economics yeah. uh, has there been the push from uh, different lobby agencies, big pharma, to increase investments in there and different government policies coming out? I think there have been, I haven't looked at the deal flow too much on this, but there have definitely been some companies that I've paid attention to where um, there are companies that, there's a lot of focus on the producing the isotopes, for example. And there's been a lot of research by the Department of Energy to be able to fund via grants to private companies that have technologies in, you know, particle accelerators, for example, to come up with alternative ways to produce uh, uh, certain therapy isotopes to increase the amount of, uh, to increase the amount of supply for, uh, you know, for, you know, for, so that more cancer patients can be treated. So there's that kind of government investment in that, in that sense. I think the more important, I think the more important aspect to look into for uh, this class of drugs is really the, you know, the FDA portion of this, of the regulatory p- portion. So this comes in really important for imaging drugs, for example. So imaging drugs for any of them, really, you're not injecting enough to have a therapeutic effect. You're injecting just enough. Um, so, so basically, like, the, you know, if you inject any radio, um, any, any kind of organic compound, right? Mm. Like, let's say you use, like, you know, um, Oxycontin, you know, the, the pain uh, the pain reducer. If you only inject very, very little of it, it's not going to have a therapeutic effect because there's a therapeutic window that you need to exceed, for example. So radiopharmaceuticals don't exceed this therapeutic window. So they don't, they don't have, um, like, a, they don't have a therapeutic effect on the body. And they don't have enough radiation to be able to cause any significant harm uh, to anyone being scanned. Mm. And uh, and this is true for healthy patients. My mother uh, just got a PET scan, and you know she definitely doesn't have any type of cancer right now. So one of the things in th- in the regulatory regime needs to be that needs to be changed is for radiopharmaceuticals because they're treated like conventional drugs right now, and mm. it's and that's a very stringent process. So uh, for a single radiopharmaceutical, even if it's just an imaging agent, even though with all the safety, uh, even with all the safety aspects that I'm that I mentioned, that you know it's such a small amount. It still costs about anywhere from thirty to one hundred fifty million to develop one of these drugs, and the reimbursement rates are a lot lower. So, the the ROI for these drugs are a lot lower as a result with all the regulatory burden. So, there's a push to change that with the FDA to you know with more and more radiopharmaceuticals demonstrating that they're safety, uh, that you know that they're safe and efficacious, um, that you know it doesn't need to go to such a strict regulatory regime in order to get them approved. And this way we can get more drugs onto the market that can, you know, get better standards of care for patients that, that really need it without being held back. So right. that's one of the biggest costs for the industry is why, you know, a lot of, you know, big pharma companies and, 
um, you know, lobbyists might be, you know, might be advocating for. Yeah. So, so before that happens right now, um, if you know this, what's the cost of a, uh, of a treatment like this yeah. for a cancer patient? Yeah. So let's use, um, let's use, uh, Novartis's example. So the right. imaging agent is, um, so the imaging agent, each each scan is is uh, or each dose actually, not even just a scan, is about thirty four thirty five hundred to four thousand dollars for the reimbursement rate, and then the therapy itself is is forty two thousand dollars per dose. So it's it's not cheap, you know, and that's that's drawn some backlash, um, especially for one of Novartis's assets because it's so expensive to do so. But if you're at stage three and four cancer, you can kind of understand why. If you really don't have another choice um, right. to revert this cancer, that's one of the reasons it costs so much. And part the other portion, the other the flip side of the coin is that they have to recover their investment um, because it is <clears throat> it is quite expensive to produce these drugs given the yeah. supply chain and you know all the logistics that goes into it and the regulatory burden to be able to bring this drug into market. So so for the cancer patients out there listening. Um, how does it compare to the cost of other traditional treatments like uh, chemo or um, uh, immuno immunology uh, treatments for cancer? I can't really speak to that um, for, for stage three and four, well, for any stage of patient, uh, really. But I would imagine this is likely more expensive. Um, I, I've, you know, I've had a couple friends with, with chemotherapy. And I've, you know, done a few market interviews, you know, with insurers on how much they reimburse chemotherapy. It's definitely not, you know, it's definitely not um, forty-two thousand dollars per per treatment course or or dose. But at stage three and four, chemotherapy and radiation therapy are not really an option uh, anymore. Right. Um, at that point, generally, from what I've, generally from my conversations with oncologists, radiation oncologists, and some radiologists, is is that you're holding out hope that some of these options work outside of um, outside of radiopharmaceuticals if you don't use that. So right. What are the other alternative uh, treatments? Uh, chemotherapy, uh, uh, radiation therapy. Okay. Um, and at stage three and four, you you generally surgery is very uncommon. I, I don't think I, I don't know of a case. Then again, I'm not a doctor. Right. Yeah. But I. If the tumors are, if tumors are everywhere, it's it's really hard to, to, you know, cut them out at that point. So, yeah. Yeah. So I I guess from from there we we move to a more hopeful point. Um, yeah. If you look at the industry landscape now, um, after the FDA approval, the landmark approval of the uh, the drug that was bought by Novartis. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding is, as we read from the Twitter, there are a lot of activities happening with new startups, um, yeah. innovations. Um, what stage are we at now? What, what, how mature are these startups and how many years uh, we have to wait perhaps for this to really take off as yeah. industry? Give yeah. us a timeline. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm no prognosticator, I guess, but I think that we're still in very early stages. I mean, since 2018, we've still really only had those same three drugs. And as I mentioned, one of the companies that has IPO'd already, Raise Bio, they are basically taking the same, <clears throat> they're taking the same target 
basically the same organic compound that uh, that Novartis had bought, and then they're attaching a different, more effective uh, radioisotope to that compound for patients that Novartis's compound was not able to treat. That's really where the idea originally came from. <coughs> I think we're still really in the early innings of radiopharmaceutical development, and a lot of large pharma companies are starting to get into the game. Uh, for example, with um, beyond just Novartis, there's also Bayer. Mm. They're the ones who commercialized um, a drug called Zofigo, and that's being distributed right now. Uh, and it, it's it's a lot of startups doing the heavy lifting right now to develop all these pipelines. As you mentioned, there are 60 clinical candidates and more than 100 preclinical candidates. There are, a lot of them are, are really small pharma companies. And who and, are the investors in this space right now? Is, are they mostly universities? Or the, or the big pharma? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, big pharma VCs, def- yeah. yeah, they're the, basically all of the above. Um, universities are not the investors, but universities are the ones that, in, in a sense, they're the ones who invested in the basic research to be able to determine the targets, the organic compounds in the first place. That gives these, uh, that gives, um, that really gives the, you know, the snipers the roadmap to be able to attack these different types of cancers, right? Yeah. Um, we also have, you know, some big farmers investing in, uh, in in companies that, you know, that might fit in with their existing pipelines that might provide some kind of synergies with it. Uh, but for the most part, from a lot of these small companies, it's going to be, um, it's going to be VCs that fund this. Fun- funds like Samsara BioCapital, Launch Two Capital, and uh, uh, Venrock, Venbio. Those are the main funds that fund a lot of these bioscience startups, as well as Merck's venture arm. Mm. So the biotech VCs yeah. uh, specializes in these, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so on the other side of the uh, um, of the ecosystem, I guess, uh, comes to the question of talent. Mm-hmm. How specialized is this knowledge and, and in terms of the education resources in medical school, are we supplying enough doctors and um, technicians and you know scientists yeah. that are knowledgeable in this field. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, I would say I would say no. I, I think given that, I think a lot of the talent. There's a lot of overlap between conventional pharma and determining, you know, a lot of the targets and uh, and, and 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 compounds to be able to attack certain types of cancers. On top of that, you have radiochemists that we would need to basically, you know, react these compounds together and, and do that type of research. I think that's very specialized, but I think it's a bottleneck that can be resolved. Um, you know, I have a couple of colleagues that work on radiochemistry and you can you can train, you know, a normal chemist or really, you know, another person who has experience in science, uh, perhaps, you know, just a regular researcher and you can train them in radiochemistry. But I think that we definitely need more, we definitely need more doctors who focus on oncology and doing a lot more of this type of research to be able to add to the firepower of this industry to to keep developing. And I think right. that, um, I don't know what the right amount is, but I think with the way that this industry is growing, you'll definitely need more people. Not just more people who are trained, but more people who are interested, who understand really what kind of influence that this, you know, that this can have on the cancer death rate and, and really driving that down severely. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think we've covered a lot of grounds with this conversation, but 
for all my listeners out there wondering, what's your personal connection to this to this industry? And uh, perhaps share with what you can about what you're working on at the moment. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, um, so as you mentioned, I was up front. I was a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, you know, I was a PhD. You know, I was a PhD student at UCLA, and I studied material science and engineering. Yeah. And one of the opportunities that came up was that my school's tech transfer office, which is basically the office that houses all the pa- houses and manages all the patents of you know university professors that invent you know something from the research and then they file it with the university and the university essentially owns that patent one professor uh, one day just you know came into this um, came into the check transfer office essentially and said that he wanted to commercialize his technology and part of that deal was that he got a, a venture fellow from the office which turned out to be me and what happened there was that I supported the due diligence on this technology to basically understand the um, understand his technology, understand its place within the market, and understand where it can be reimbursed and how it can support stakeholders across the across the whole landscape of radio pharmaceuticals. And I eventually uh, told um, I, I told that professor that I wanted to be co-founders with him in in founding a a radio pharmaceutical startup that provides the infrastructure behind making the supply chain and distribution, manufacture and drug development right. uh, of these radio pharmaceuticals more efficient and more efficient, less time consuming, and also shorten these drug development times to be able to get more of these candid, um, drug candidates onto market. So that's kind of my connection to this industry is having started a startup that doesn't necessarily focus on the drug asset, but focuses on kind of the overarching uh, infrastructure and capital that really undergirds and supports the industry. and ensures right. that it's more robust for the future when there is a lot of growth that is coming into the industry and that it can be supported at the same time. Yeah, that that's a lot of uh, uh, materials you can use in, in the startup pitch. Yeah. But to simplify, you're making the tools to make the chemical compounds. The yeah, exactly. Radioacetopes. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, and I think, how long have you been working on this? So it's been so we incorporated in about March of twenty twenty two, so okay. about eighteen months now, and we've been doing a lot of strategy uh, up until up until now, and it was only until recently, as of last month or so, yeah, that we got uh, about three SBIR SBIR standing for Small Business Innovation and Research. Um, that's a program in the United States where you get government grants to develop specific, you know, aspects of your company. Uh, that are in line with the goals of, you know, what the government wants in terms of basic research and science. Yeah. And we've gotten about uh, gotten about eight hundred fifty thousand dollars so far. So that's a good start to be able to, you know, hire a person or two. Yeah. To be able to, you know, just explore somewhat risk free, and we're going to use that to basically kind of launch our company and uh, kind of take time to, in a very stepwise fashion, to yeah. determine. Uh, where our niche is in the industry and how to establish ourselves. So you're, you're showing this stealth mode now, yeah. uh, <laughs> laying out the, the groundwork and um, getting zero to one. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think... Well, uh, I guess I, I guess to be fair, not, not yeah. zero to one, you know, I think that I think that would be unfair to the rest of the industry because like we're, I think we're putting together like, you know, uh, a technology that we think is radically different, but the markets already exist. You know, the technology, you know, exists already and we're kind of taking it from I would say probably from I don't know three to N you know, 
which is a lot easier than you know zero to one. So yeah, but yeah. but still a um, a major improvement. Yeah, a lot of things yeah. you're contributing to the to the sector ecosystem on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> I think um, in our previous conversation, you mentioned about uh, a dream you had recently. Yeah. That just shows how obsessed you are with the, yeah, the startup you work on, which is unrelated to your PhD, yeah, uh, the field of uh, thesis, yeah. Do you mind sharing that? Yeah, yeah. No, so it was it was just kind of this these one weird this this one weird fever dream that I had after just just one night after I woke up, and I think that I had it was about six months into to startup, and I had. Done so much market research on you know prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancers, cancers that can't be screened, and I think the dream went that I woke up one day, and I woke up one day within the dream, and I realized I had pancreatic cancer, and you know I thought I I first thought oh my god you know I'm gonna die because typically you find pancreatic cancers at around stage four, and then after about an hour in the dream or what seemed like an hour. I, you know, just didn't worry anymore because, you know, I saw the developments that were happening in the industry, and there were tracers for pancreatic cancer that <clears throat> could be, you know, essentially um, relabeled from an image compound to a therapy compound. So I basically told that company, which does exist in real life,、uh, you know, you only have an image compound right now. Why don't you just label it with a therapy compound and just inject it inside me? <laughs> you know, because I'm going to die anyway. And I think that、um, it was a very weird dream, to be honest. But I think that it showed, like you know, I I developed, you know, I I wanted to develop this technology with my co-founder, such that you know we can come to a day where I myself am not going to be afraid of dying of pancreatic or another stage four cancer. And I really want people to be in that same boat with me, where they also, you know, if it's good enough for me that. They also don't have to be afraid of dying of stage four cancer and saying goodbye to their loved ones as well, and、um, I think that's you know I I think I'm probably thinking a little too much about my startup you know from from day in and day out, but I think that that one weird dream is、um, is is a sign that I'm probably in the right place. So yeah, yeah. I think I think purpose is a is a very big overlooked factor behind a lot of successes. Yeah. If you're only there for the money for the fame.、Um, It's not going to last very long, I think. Yeah,、um, right. Working in the healthcare industry and in, in pharma, specifically on、um, cancer as a class of disease that、um, has haunted us for so long as、yeah. a human race, I think it's a very meaningful、uh, pursuit. Right.、Um, in the startup you work on, so、um, I think with that we can wrap it up today's conversation.、Uh, we've learned a lot about the industry, the science behind it. The different players, and、uh, I'm glad we ended on this hopeful note and the dream,、um, both the the、uh, the dream from your sleep and also the <laughs> the dream as your、um, ambition to、um, revolutionize the industry or play a small part in this、uh, transition. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Clancy, for your time and also for the work you're doing、um, for cancer research. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.